Welcome to Bar Fights with attorney and advocate Sarah Klein. Taking on issues that matter and advocating for legal, cultural, and political change everywhere in order to protect children and vulnerable adults. Joining the conversation are survivors, advocates, lawyers, media personalities, athletes, celebrities, authors, wellness aficionados, and many more. Because bringing real justice takes a team of experts who care. Now, leading the fight is your host, Sarah Klein. Hi, you guys. Welcome to Bar Fights. Today is different than anything we have ever done on this show. We have the coolest guest for you. His story is going to blow your mind. And I'm going to give you like a little preview of it, but then our guest is going to walk us through this story and the work he's doing today. It's one of those full circle moments from my perspective, but we'll hear from him. Our guest today is named Marty Tankleth, and he was just 17 years old living on Long Island when he was arrested for killing his parents. And the police had this sort of dubious, unsigned, what they called confession from Marty following hours upon hours of interrogation by a detective with a questionable background. Um, So Marty was convicted and he was sentenced to, are you ready, 50 years to life in prison you guys, at 17 years old. And Marty served 17 of those years, but after a long and arduous journey, which we're going to hear about today, Marty's conviction was vacated by the New York State Appellate Division. And that was in December of 2007. And then in 2008, Andrew Cuomo, attorney general at the time, dismissed all charges against Marty. And so here we are in 2022, and Marty has done some incredible, incredible work. Um, We're going to hear about that today. Marty, welcome to Bar Fights, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It really is a pleasure. Um, to be here and be able to speak to your listeners about some very important topics. Yeah, it's just, it's, this is a crazy story. It's one of those things I always say on this show, like it's that we talk about the kind of stuff you feel like you only see on TV or you only see at Netflix or something. And I know you've been on TV and you've been profiled on all the major shows and networks over the years. Um, so it's just so cool to get to talk to you and hear a little bit more. So walk us back to 17 years old, you wake up one morning and, and, you know, your life completely changes. What happened? I I just have to give you a little bit of a backdrop so people can understand it. So in the eighties, my father was an entrepreneur, uh, owned his own insurance company, sold the insurance company, and got involved in the bagel business by with the name, name man named Jerry Stewartman. Uh, my father was p- partners with him in several bagel stores. They owned horses. 
However, in the summer of 1988, their relationship started to deteriorate really bad. And, you know, back then, I didn't really know any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but my father started to demand money back. My father was looking for a shotgun. My father told somebody that Jerry Stuman threatened to cut his tongue out. Uh, my father also told Mike Fox, who's my godfather, Jerry won't fuck with me because I know where the bones are buried. Oh. So, so you have to understand that backdrop. So yeah. on September 7th, um, I woke up and on September 6th into the 7th, my father held a poker game where Jerry Stewarman was at. Uh, I woke up on September 7th to what should have been my first day of senior year. Oh. Um, but it wasn't. I woke up to discover that my father had been attacked. Uh, my mother was deceased. Um, and almost immediately after I called 911, the police arrived. And basically what I say was I was kidnapped by law enforcement and brought into their custody. And after countless hours, don't even know how many hours it was, they said I confessed to the murders. Um, and my life was never the same from that day forward. I mean, I wasn't uh, allowed to see family. I wasn't allowed to see friends. I was driven you know, from my hometown area, instead of going to the hospital where I wanted to go, I was brought to police headquarters. Uh, family were lied to by law enforcement of where I was. And my life really kind of took a completely different turn that day. Um, I was arrested. And shortly thereafter, I was incarcerated. And it took about a month before I was finally released on bail. And you could just say that there is no 17-year-old kid, you know, and, and back then I was a kid. I wasn't a young adult. I had just turned 17 a few days before September 7th because my birthday is August 29th. So what I would say is like a few days into my 17th year. Um, and the criminal justice system failed on so, so many levels um, because within days of me being arrested, Jerry Stuman cleaned out a joint bank account, told his family he'd be swimming with the fish, faked his death, fled from New York to New Jersey, from New Jersey to California, had five aliases, but law enforcement never considered him a suspect. And, you know, when I, when I speak to any audience and I say, you know, think about this, you have two business partners. One is, you know, attack, but still survived. And also the other one cleans out a joint bank account, you know, and I just kind of go through the litany of issues. I said, well, would you consider him a suspect? And like even elementary schools, kids were like, obviously, yes. Like common sense. Yes. I mean, you know, you fake your death, you're swimming with the fish, you, you, you know, you flee the jurisdiction, you hide in a psychiatric retreat, you have a code word to let a family member know you're alive. It's all suspicious. But in Suffolk County, it wasn't. Oh. And what I always tell people is that one of the problems with the criminal justice system is it's got, it gets institutional blinders. When they announce that somebody confessed or when they announce they've arrested somebody, quite often nobody ever wants to admit a mistake was made. And that's what happened in my case. Nobody wanted to admit a mistake was made. And you're a child... And this is law enforcement, which we are taught as children is there to protect us, to keep us safe, 
to investigate, to be innocent until proven guilty. Um, you had just found your mother deceased, your father very injured and then deceased, right? And you're a child whipped out of your home that same day within hours, minutes, whatever, and isolated and treated what sounds like like an adult to the very least, like an adult, but more like a criminal, right? And um, and the people you were supposed to be able to trust and rely on to take care of a child failed you. And we were just talking before we started recording about the big news today. We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, June 8th where the cover of the New York Times and all other law all other outlets news outlets is about the FBI and their mishandling of, of the children in the Nasser case um, two completely different cases but similar theme where law enforcement failed children and children were irreparably harmed and in your case you lost 17 plus years of your life incarcerated Behind that, I think the, the core of the similarity is, is that, as you said, there was a reliance or a trust in law enforcement to do their jobs and do them well. Yes. And I think that's what people really need to understand is that two things. One is that not all law enforcement are bad. Okay. True. I was trying to say that's not all law enforcement yes. are bad, but yeah. when you take some bad apples they really can infect the entire bunch because what ends up happening is, is that they can take their entire team of people down a dirty road and nobody wants because of the, the old blue wall. Nobody wants to admit anything was doing anything. But the other problem is so often you have law enforcement that work hand in hand with the government or prosecutors and law enforcement says, or they turn information over to the government and says, listen, you know, we have eyewitnesses, we have this evidence, and prosecutors never question it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the problems is that if you don't have a, a, a truly good checks and balance, you end up having these problems. And in almost every wrongful conviction case, you can stem kind of the core problem that there was some wrongdoing of law enforcement or the prosecutor's office. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's what the two cases really have in common. It's the wrongdoing of law enforcement. Yeah. And, you know, in wrongful conviction cases, when law enforcement does something wrong, you have the innocent person that goes to jail. You have the guilty party remains free in our communities to commit additional crimes. So they actually become part victimizer, you know, in reality, but to the outside world, they think, oh, they're their savior. Yeah. And, and so often I've, I've asked this question publicly. I said, you know, if there was a crime that happened in your backyard on a Saturday, and all of a sudden Monday, law enforcement said, oh, we've arrested the person who committed the crime. You know, how many people are satisfied with that? And generally, it's like 90% of hands, they raise their hands. And I go, did any one of you ever question, did they get it right? Yeah. And all of a sudden people start saying, well, what do you mean? They said, law enforcement said we arrested the right person. I go, but that's the problem. You just accepted it that what they said is being true. I said, we should know by now. 
so much of what we've heard from law enforcement over our decade isn't true, right? And I think the technology age has actually helped many of us where we've seen stories where law enforcement come out publicly and say, you know, it's X, Y, and Z, and all of a sudden a video comes out and something completely different. Yeah. Wow. So what happened? How are you sitting here today telling this incredible story and teaching all of us these lessons as a free man? What happened next? So in 1990, um, I went to trial. And on June 28th, 1990, I was found guilty. Uh, and a few months later, I was sentenced to 50 years to life. Oh. So for, for, for your listeners to get a perspective, had I not been exonerated, had I not been free, my first eligibility for parole would have been October of 2040. So not for another 18 years. Oh my God. But I knew I wasn't going to die in prison. I knew I wasn't going to live in prison forever. I knew the truth was out there. I just never thought it would take almost 18 years to find the truth and actually have the system work. Um, through my time in prison, I remember meeting a lot of people who always told me, Marty, you know, the system is such a train wreck that when the innocent are convicted, it's one of the most difficult things to overcome because when you expose somebody who's wrongfully convicted, what you're saying is that the guilty parties remain free and the system failed. And nobody wants to admit a system of failure. They just don't. You know this. A lot of people you know know this. But it's a reality that I think everyone should understand is that you know, it's much easier to admit a mistake and learn from that mistake and move forward. But when you don't want to make the mistake or you don't want to acknowledge a mistake was made, people keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Um, you know, we learned this in the wrongful conviction world that, you know, if somebody dies in a hospital, they have like a sentinel review where they evaluated how they died, why it happened, or, you know, some kind of study. So often that doesn't happen in wrongful conviction cases. And I think that's a problem that really should be addressed. But for me, it was a constant fight. And what ended up happening was after a lot of failed attempts in the legal system, uh, my lawyer said, well, what's never been done before? And what was never done was a true investigation, right? It was the law enforcement focused on me and only me. We ended up hiring a private investigator who focused on Jerry Stuerman. And you could say the circle around him. And one of the closest circle members was his son, Todd Sturman, who was a drug dealer who had enforcers. And the investigator found one of Todd's criminal associates. And when the investigator met with him, he goes, I've been waiting for this day for 13 years. I think it was like 13 years or 12 years. And they said, what do you mean? He goes, I was the getaway driver that night. Oh, my God. And that started the whole ball rolling along where we started finding one witness after another witness, after another witness, after another witness. And eventually we had accumulated enough witnesses that we petitioned the court in New York uh, to give me a hearing. Uh, the problem was, is that you go back to the same courthouses in the same venue where you were originally convicted. Um, 
so you're kind of going back into that dangerous playing field again. And after almost 18 months of hearings from different witnesses, the judge ruled against me. Uh, and that was in, it was actually St. Patrick's Day of 2007. <sighs> then we appealed the case to the appellate division. And as you mentioned earlier, on December 21st, 2007, the appellate division reversed the convictions. And on December 27th, I was freed. And I have never returned to prison since then, uh, other than to represent people or conduct investigations because of the work I'm doing now. I, my jaw's on the floor. I cannot, my mind is literally blown. Do you think the reason that trial court judge ruled against you was that same phenomenon of not wanting to admit that we might've gotten this wrong the first time? I have no doubt that there's some aspect to that, but I think it runs deeper than that. Um, I mean, we had a witness who came forward who gave us very favorable information, but he was facing criminal charges in Suffolk County. When he was actually called to testify, he completely changed his story. Those criminal charges disappeared. But years later, when the attorney general's office conducted their reinvestigation, they went back to that witness and he said, what I told Marty's lawyer was truthful, but I didn't want to go to prison. So they made deals. And, and I think that's the problem, too, is that there's this inherent kind of relationship that happens with a lot of people in law enforcement, the court system, where if somebody rules against them or makes a determination that's adverse to you know, the history or, or pre-existing facts, then people take offense to that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and people don't want to be that person. But I also think there's been a period of time over the last 10, 15, 20 years that judges are somewhat reluctant to overturn convictions because they may have this kind of what if, you know, what if this person gets out and he commits another crime? I could tell you in the almost 14, 15 years that I've been out, I don't think I've known any exoneree who's gotten out who has committed a serious offense ever, ever. You know, when you've been in prison as an innocent man or woman mm. for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, even 40 years, there's really nothing in life you want to do more than anything than enjoy freedom. Yeah. So the idea that they would commit a crime is just ridiculous. Yeah. I just took like a million notes. I have so many things I want to ask you. <laughs> Tell okay. me. So, so you come to this place where you get out, you've been locked up for essentially half your life, right? 6,338 days. Yes. And so you come to this point when you get out first, before we talk about what you've done with your life, I want to talk about your, your mental state. You're a child when all of this happens. You're, you lose your mom and your dad, right? You lose your parents, the grief, the confusion, the, and then you're thrust into the prison system. How did you get through those 17 years? How did you, how are you not bitter? How are you so resilient? What are you made of? Because a lot of people wouldn't have, pursued the path of freedom behind bars they would have just given up 
they would have become hardened, angry, uh, depressed, um, you know, all the things, how are you, this lovely man (laughs) who's talking about this with such clarity and, and how are you still standing, Marty? Um, I think I could sum up in one sentence. I want to make sure that there are no other Marty Tankles. I want to make sure that no one else goes through, you could say it very simply, the shit and hell I went through because nobody should. And I think you, you understand that, right? You understand that from your own personal experiences that no other young woman should go through what you went through. It's one of the reasons why I do what I do now. It's one of the reasons why I've testified before legislative bodies around this country to get legislation passed to protect children. You know, I was 17 years old. This should not happen to a 17 year old kid anywhere in this world, but especially in the United States. You know, and and to break it down, it's very good family members kind of instilled in me very early on. It's a time to be smart and focused and not emotional. Because in prison, if you get emotional, you can become victimized, you can lose focus. And I knew I did not want to be remembered as Marty Tank of, you know, the son who killed his parents. I wanted to be Marty Tank of the person who fought through all the hell, all the obstacles, and would show the world what really happened. And then when I was able to do that, I would move forward and then show the world what kind of success story I could be and how I could make a difference in this world. I almost want to cry right now, Marty. <laughs> like, I'm so touched by you. you. Um, it, 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 I, I'm literally speechless, which as you can tell, doesn't happen often. Um, but, but this audience um, and I, will absolutely remember you as, as Marty Tancliffe, hero, survivor, warrior, change maker. Um, and it's interesting. Some of somebody recently, you know, said, you know, if you had to introduce yourself, so I used to introduce myself as exoneree attorney professor and somebody said, no. So I'm now, you know, my name is Marty Tancliffe. I'm the Peter P. Mullen distinguished visiting professor at Georgetown university. I'm a criminal defense attorney and I'm an exoneree. And that's because I'm not, my past isn't who I am. Mm-hmm. Okay. My part, my current, my present is who I am. And it may be defined by my past. But for a while, I used to always say, oh, I'm an exoneree. And everybody said, you are, but guess what? You are a professor at Georgetown. You're an attorney. You're an advocate. You know, you're, you're so much more than just the exonerate point of view. Mm-hmm. And for a while, it was hard to kind of re kind of reconstitute or rephrase myself who I am. And somebody helped me bring into clarity um, because I think there are some people who get literally defined by their past, not their present. And people need sometimes just one or, you know, maybe just one person to say, stop. That's not who you are. Right. Yep. You know, and I think, you know that and probably I'm hoping a lot of your listeners will either know that or, or really start to identify with that, that, you know, you can be a victim, but you're not the victim for your life. You're a victim 
or victimization, maybe a point of your life that helps define your career path or what you're passionate about. Um, and that's something I know you can relate to because you do this every day based on your life experience, you know, but you're Sarah Klein, attorney at law and podcaster. Yep. yep. I, there's like, it, there's, there's, I'm a, a, a blonde haired, green eyed girl. You're this strapping Italian looking stallion. And, but we, there's so much about what we're both doing and saying and living and breathing that is similar. And I'm so touched Marty. Um, Tell me if this is taking it too far, but I often say when I get interviewed and you can tell me if it resonates with you at all, that maybe it was supposed to happen this way. Maybe whatever it was that is that higher power, whatever this happened to me because I could handle it. And because I was going to catch that ball and run with it. And here I am um, almost like it was meant to happen. I don't know. And that's like, I've forgiven, I've, you know, moved forward. And I feel um, too, like the constitution, what we're made of um, was such that we could handle it and we can still be standing and we can be doing good with what happened. So we, so last semester or a few months ago, when I was teaching one of my classes at Georgetown uh, with my childhood, Mark Howard, I teach this class at Georgetown. And we had an exoneree who was speaking to our class via Zoom. And one of the students asked him, you know, would you change anything in your life? It was something to that fact, like, would you have changed the, the path your life has taken you? Or do you regret it or anything? It was some question like that. And it wasn't at that very moment that I really thought about it. And it was after that I started to realize that maybe life had this plan for me because since I've been free, I've, I've got legislation, I've been instrumental in getting legislation passed in several states that protect children. You know, through the class they teach at Georgetown with Mark Howard, I've walked three innocent people out of prison. You know, I, I've taught, uh, you know, over almost 75 students over five years. I, I've got former students who are actually working at the Innocence Project that are helping to exonerate people, give their lives back. And if I didn't go to prison, none of that would be possible. None of that would have happened. You know, would I want anybody to go through the hell I went through? No but maybe there was some path in life that this was meant for me. Um, it's very possible. I mean, you know, some people say is that you are given only so much that you can handle mm-hmm. and how you handle it is really what defines who you are. And I, I believe that without a doubt, I believe that. This is probably my favorite podcast I've ever done. I'm, I'm just, I'm so inspired and you're speaking my language, Marty. Um, Cause you could be bitter. You could be enraged. You could be, you could have turned to drugs and alcohol and be a burnout, you know, with no job and no, you, you could have gone down that path. I could have gone down that path. Um, and instead we're giving meaning to what happened to us and we're paying it forward and we're not dwelling um, in the why me bullshit. Right. Um, 
let's talk about what you're doing now. You're a freaking professor at Georgetown University. What the actual fuck that is like big time. Okay. You're a Um, lawyer. You've gone to law school. You're practicing law. And then there's a twist about where you're practicing law now, which I love. Tell us all about where is Marty today? So we'll start with Georgetown. So so basically three weeks after I got out of prison, I enrolled at Hofstra, um, where I finished my bachelor's degree. Then I went on to tour law school. And that's kind of the, the career path that was started. But from the time I was free, my childhood friend, Mark Howard, who fought to free me, was a tenured professor at Georgetown. And I would speak to his class either back then it was by Skype or I would come go down to Georgetown and speak. And finally, around 20, early 2018, he said, would you ever think about teaching a class together? And Mark had changed his whole kind of teaching at Georgetown from government to almost criminal justice. He established the Prisons and Justice Initiative. So in 2018, we decided to start teaching a class called Making an Exoneree, where we would utilize 15 undergraduate students to reinvestigate each semester, uh, five potentially innocent men or women in prison, and, you know, it was interesting in 2018, it was called 400 X and the X was because they considered it experimental, but we just finished our fifth semester of teaching it. In the last five years, we walked three innocent men out of prison, Valentina Dixon, Keith Washington, Eric Riddick. Um, and just this past January, um, I actually got a promotion at Georgetown and I'm the Peter P. Mullen Distinguished Visiting Professor. And what's so amazing about that position is some of the former recipients of this is Ron Klain, who is the uh, Joe Biden's chief of staff, Seth Waxman, who was a former solicitor general, Paul Clement was a former solicitor general, Maureen Mahoney, an ambassador. So it's a pretty prestigious title um, that I have now. Um, But just last week or kind of this week, uh, there was even a bigger change. Uh, I joined the law firm of Barquette, Epstein, Kieran, Alday, and Laturco as special counsel. And Mark Howard, who is my co-professor at Georgetown, also joined as special counsel. But what makes it so amazing is Bruce Barquette was one of the attorneys that led the fight to free me. Mm. So, you know, kind of went full circle. I went from client to kind of a colleague in the criminal defense world to now a true colleague where I'm now a partner, not a partner. Part, not, not partner just yet. <laughs> <laughs> yet, Marty Tankcliffe. <laughs> yet, yet. Uh, I'm special counsel at the firm uh, with a focus on wrongful convictions. So for me, it's just an absolutely amazing opportunity that the firm gave me to come here and just continue doing the amazing work that I love doing. Um, you know, you probably have heard this many times is, you know, how can you do this work? How can you go back into prison and represent people? You know, you know, you know, don't you just want to like go as far away from it as possible? And I was like, listen, I, I could have done that. I mean, I have friends of mine that said, more, you know, you should have opened up a coconut shack on a beach in Florida and you know, your day should have been like gong fishing and making <laughs> coconut milkshakes or something. And I said, that's not me. You know, I, I went into law school. I went to become a lawyer. I wanted to represent people and, and help people and make a difference because, you know, each individual life that we can touch and make a difference in 
that becomes our legacy and also make sure that no one else is a victim like me. Yes. Wow. And for me, it's given me a lot of healing to be able to be on that other side of it, to be the one helping that person, because nobody knows better than those of us who have walked in those shoes before them. Right. And so it's, it's a legacy. Like you said, it's, I went through this and now I can make it easier for you to go through this and I can walk you through it in a way that Joe Schmo lawyer simply cannot. They can have all the degrees in the world, but it, they didn't walk in those shoes like we did. And um, I, I feel like it's been extremely healing to be able to play that role. Um, I think we can each say we took down a monster yeah. in our own realm, right? Yeah. You know, you and your fellow people, and I, I don't want to say friends, they're all friends of yours, I'm sure, took down a monster. And for me, I took down the monster, which was this criminal injustice system in Suffolk County. And, you know, our, like you said, our experiences helped define who we are, but more so they helped define how we can help others through the system. Yeah. You know, when somebody comes to me and says, hey, I was wrongfully convicted, I can connect to them, you know, and I think you can feel that way with what you're doing too. And I think that's, it's something I think people need to understand is that we have a perspective that no one else has, you know, so they say, you know, what makes you different? Oh, we're very different. (laughs) Right. It's so true. And that's, I think what's allowed you to be so wildly successful in, in your field. And, you know, my work just continues to grow too. And it's just um, it's good stuff. And I think you probably touch lives of people you will never even meet just by telling your story and putting it out there like you're doing here. Um, somebody is going to listen to this and take something you said, and it's going to, it's going to change them for the better. And I admire that too. Um, continuing to tell your story over and over and over again, um, because it's not always fun and not always easy, but it's changing lives. And I think we both can rest easy at the end of every day, knowing that that's what we're doing. Um, Marty, how do people find you? How do people get involved? If somebody's listening and says, I want to help, you know, and I want to, and I want to, you know, know more about you, how do they get involved? So they can go, if they want to know more about the class at Georgetown, they can go to making an Uh, I'm all over social media and the tagline is very easy. You can use the Google, my name, or I'm exonerated, which is X O N E R eight, the number eight ED. Um, and I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, just about everywhere. Um, but getting involved, I mean, this is what I try to tell people all the time. They say, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a criminal justice person. I don't know what to do. And I tell every one of them, there's always something you can do, no matter what your skill set is. And even if you don't have a skill set, just speaking up can make a difference. You know, voting the right way can make a difference, right? I mean, we have students who, and all our students are undergraduates, and some of them are going to want to go into law school. A lot of them are in law school, but some say, listen, 
I don't want to be a lawyer, but I want to get involved. So I have one former student who actually is working at Jason Flom's podcast, Wrongful Conviction, because she was good at investigation. She was good at storytelling. She was good at social media. So basically, we inspired her to do that. We have other students who love investigative journalism. So they've gone on to become reporters. And, you know, we tell people there's always something you can do, whether it be spreading, you know, retweeting something, sharing something on social media, even sometimes demanding accountability. If we bring up a story where we're saying, listen, here's this district attorney who's refusing to do X, Y, and Z. Well, guess what? You're a constituent. Demand accountability, demand like some explanations to their elected officials. You know, you essentially pay their salaries. So if you feel that policies are being put into place that aren't fair, speak up about it. And, you know, the more we do this, the more accountability there is, the more positive change there will be. But I think there's one big takeaway too, is that what happened to me, and really it's probably the same thing, what happened to me and happened to you, can happen to anyone in this world. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, purple, green, male or female, the system does not discriminate. And if you think it does, you're foolish. Amen. And I say that all the time. This stuff is happening in your community, whether you know about it or not. So eyes wide open, um, you know, look at your lawmakers, look at, you know, what's what's being voted on in your community. Look around. It can happen to your child. It can happen to your sister, brother, um, anywhere, anyone. And it is happening everywhere. Right. And, you know, your story, my story, it's happening. So we can choose to put on our blinders and turn on Netflix, or we can choose to do our part. And Marty and I challenge all of you listening, whatever the cause may be, um, if something is not working and people are being harmed, turn off the television and go do something. Right. Um, Marty, you know, there is so much you can do. I mean, listen, there, <laughs> there are a lot of these innocence organizations that list like what you can do, how to contribute. Yeah. Look, you know, we're living in a world where the technology is so far advanced that just spreading educational videos, speaking up, having conversations, you know, watching the videos that our students produce on the cases we've worked on, you know, demanding accountability. Um, and don't be afraid. You know, I, I think that's the big issue too, is don't be afraid because there's always going to be some negative pushback, you know, and I think each of us have experienced that in our pursuit to expose the truth, you know, where we get, oh, that didn't happen or that can't be true. You know, I can remember a time where you always used to say, oh, in, there aren't innocent people in prison. Oh, there's no such thing as a wrongful conviction. You know, since 1989, there's a National Registry of Exonerations. And I think the other day I checked that since 1989, there are almost 3,200 recorded exonerations. The amount of years that those people have spent in prison, I think, is almost 23,000 years. Oh, my God. Those are numbers, you know, so, you know, when I ask people, so how many people do you think were exonerated last year? They're like, oh, you know, five or 10. So what if I told you about 150 or 160? 
And I kind of got that stared look. I said, think about that. That's about one person being exonerated every two to three days. What that translates to is one to every two to three days, a victim was freed from the confines of a prison. But it also means that whoever committed that crime was free for how we don't know how many years to victimize other people. And so often the innocent person had an alibi or they spoke up, but nobody listened. Mm. And I think that's something that, you know, you can resonate speaking up and nobody listening and ignoring you or saying you're crazy or you don't know what you're talking about. It's something we need to stop. You know, it's a conversation I have with people a lot of times that somebody says, well, I confess falsely. Oh, there's no such thing. You know, nobody's confessed falsely. And I tell people, I said, listen, I said, I'm going to simplify what a false confession is because most people don't understand it, right? They think it's this very complex thing. And I say, okay, think about when you were siblings, the two of you were home alone, your parents go out. While your parents are out, a, a lamp broke, a plate broke, something broke in the house. Mm-hmm. Your parents come home and they say, we're not going out for ice cream until somebody says they broke the lamp. I said, how, how many people in this room said they broke the lamp when they really didn't because they want to go out for ice cream? Almost all the time, I get like 50% of the people. I said, you confessed to something you didn't do. And all of a sudden people go, oh my God. I go, it's that simple. Now magnified by a million times where you're in an interrogation room, you're isolated from family and friends, you're told that, you know, we'll execute you publicly if you don't confess, all these things that you so You're in shock because your parents are dead and you're a child, right? You're in complete and utter shock of what the fuck is going on. And, and when law enforcement doesn't use technology to record their conduct, that creates another problem that people don't want to talk about. That when you have, when, when, when there's technology available that can be used to document everything that goes on from point, from point A to point Z, it protects people, right? But so often law enforcement doesn't want to do that. And I would say, why? What are they afraid of? If you're, if you're not doing anything wrong, don't be afraid of it. I mean, I remember hearing a detective union representative said, well, we don't want interrogation recording because we don't want the suspects to know what we're doing. My answer was, if you're not doing anything illegal or wrong, you shouldn't care. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And when you're dealing with children, especially, or young adults, everything should be recorded. A hundred percent. And that child should never be left alone either um, without at least a guardian or somebody that, you know, to, to take care. We have to do a better job taking care of our children. We have to, we have to. Marty, you're incredible. You're amazing. I'm so grateful you're here. I learned so much. Um, There's so much about you that I admire um, and I'm truly inspired. And I want you to know that the way our audience and myself will remember you is inspiration, motivation, brilliant professor at fancy university, (laughs) badass lawyer, 
change maker in all the things. That is how you will be remembered, but I hope our paths will continue to cross as as we go out and and fight fight for what's right and fight for what you said the truth and um, keeping people safe. So I'm grateful for you, Marty. It's my pleasure. And, you know, I always say that if people are looking to have me come in and speak to small groups or large groups, I do this around the country because I think the, the one-on-one interaction does help. You know, it's not this mysterious person behind a, a microphone or behind a camera. Um, I get this often when I testify, you know, virtually versus testifying in person. Um, you know, the goal is to achieve the same thing, but when a legislature sees me as a human being in front of them and not just behind a camera, it makes more of an impact. Um, and I hope as this world gradually and safely returns to a sense of normalcy, hopefully over the next few months or years, that we can do more in-person conversations on these topics, because I think it's so important to have the conversation. Um, and I've learned that, you know, it's those tough conversations that people don't want to have, but you really need to have that. Yep. Absolutely. Marty Tancliffe, thank you so much for coming on Bar Fights. This has been an amazing chat and we will see you guys all next week. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Bar Fights with attorney Sarah Klein, taking on issues that matter. Please check out our website at barfightspodcast.com, Instagram at barfightspodcast, or Twitter at barfights underscore pod for the latest show updates and archives.